Hello, folks. Welcome back to the Whoop Podcast, where we sit down with high-performing individuals to unlock what the best in the world are doing to perform at their peak and what you can do to unlock your own best performance. I'm your host, Will Ahmed, founder and CEO of Whoop, and we are on a mission to unlock human performance. On this week's episode, Whoop VP of Performance, our principal scientist, Kristen Holmes, is joined by behavioral psychologist, Dr. Gemma King. She has a PhD in human behavior and is an emotional intelligence and performance under stress expert. Gemma is a research fellow at the University of Queensland School of Psychology and works as a specialist external advisor to McKinsey and Company. Kristen and Gemma discuss Gemma's work as a behavioral psychologist, the different types of stress and stress styles. You'll actually learn what type of stress style you have and how to manage that the various behaviors that can help mitigate stress. So think about meditation, breathing protocols, healthy eating, and more. How to deal with stress before bed and throughout the night. That's right, secrets to unlock your WHOOP scores. Gemma's work with the Australian Special Forces. What Gemma is obsessing over right now. That includes gut biome health. The Wim Hof Study. WHOOP is helping Gemma and Wim put on. That's right, Wim Hof, the famous breather and cold resilience man. And finally, the best ways to prepare yourself before a stressful event. A reminder, if you're looking to join Whoop, new members can use the code WILL, W-I-L-L, at checkout and get a $60 credit on apparel and accessories. Once again, that is the code WILL, W-I-L-L, for a $60 credit when you sign up. If you have any questions you want to see answered on the podcast, email us, podcast.whoop.com. Call us, 508-443-4952. Here are Kristen Holmes and Dr. Gemma King. Gemma, I'm so happy to have you back. (laughs) So good to see you again, Kristen. We're going to talk about stress. Mm, Your favorite topic. It's an epidemic. (laughs) (laughs) It is an epidemic, which is good for your job. (laughs) whenever I tell people that I am a stress researcher they're like oh my god can I be your guinea pig and I say line up there's a huge line in front of me (laughs) let's so when people come to when they're like all right I need we're hiring Gemma tell us a little bit about what they hire you for oh it's so many things like I really have this kind of broad remit of topics that I consult about. So it really starts down at the micro or the physiology. So, you know, during my PhD and now within organisations, I look at, you know, physiological aspects of stress, sleep and strain and, you know, what are you eating that impacts your stress levels? Um, What are you thinking within your head that, you know, increases your stress? And then I really look at sort of team dynamics organizational behavior and then you know more broadly where do you fit in the world and is that really in alignment with your goals and values and I find that when people are not living in alignment with their goals and values their meaning and purpose they actually feel quite stressed yeah so there's right yeah there's like you know there's a huge dimension of factors that I look at so Jem maybe let's start by just defining stress how, you know, give us kind of the clinical definition and, and how, I guess how do you, when you're consulting folks or working with folks and you kind of set the stage, you know, how do you, how do you define stress? Yeah, stress really means in layman's terms, different to everybody, but if you look at the academic terminology, there's like chronic stress, which is when, you know, you've got high levels of stress that exceeds where you feel capable of coping with it. And so you sort of have this internal check. Do I have the resources to manage what's in front of me? And, you know, chronic stress is more prolonged in nature. You know, it's, it's more than just the usual day-to-day stress that we experience. And that's when it exceeds your resources. And that's when we see this accumulation of stress. And then it often leads to mental health issues, depression, anxiety, and cardiovascular disease. And we know that's all worsened by chronic stress then there's acute stress which is kind of like in that moment stress which is totally natural and normal uh, you know we're all going to have levels of of you know kind of pronounced stress throughout the day uh, and that's not necessarily a bad thing but when does it turn bad so obviously it goes from acute to kind of chronic you know what is that um 
what would kind of uh, what would be the criteria, I suppose, where, okay, it's no longer just acute, but it's become chronic. Um, what What is going unmanaged that basically leads to kind of chronic stress? Yeah, this is a really good question. It's different for everybody. And there's so many factors that go into your stress resilience or your capacity to deal with stress. And then, and how this manifests is, is, is different in a lot of people. So how um, capable you are of dealing with stress really goes back to even before you're born. So, you know, epigenetics, what sort of environments were your grandparents in, your parents, then there's your interuterine environment. So the amount of um, stress hormones that your mother produced actually has an effect on the growing neural architecture of the fetus. And so we find that people who had a very stressed out mother, and even in terms of like psychological stress, but also the amount of nutrients that they um, absorbed when, when you're in the interuterine environment, that does change your stress capabilities. And then there is modelling. So um, how did your parents and your family and your people around you deal with stress? And then, you know, did they, were they capable of, uh, you know, dealing with lots of stress or were they quite um, histrionic? Then there's things like in the moment, like what is your blood glucose level? We know that when you have dips in blood glucose level, that your capacity to deal with stress changes, how much food you've had, um, where you are in your menstrual cycle, how much sleep you have. I think that's the biggest factor of how much you can deal with stress. And then so to answer your question, how long does it take? Well, what I see in my research and when I'm consulting with people, you can be in sort of a high level of stress, I think for about eight weeks. And then your typical circuit breaker will manifest. And so the circuit breaker is your stress style. People have different stress styles and there's a bit of a continuum. So people are either very um, what we call expressive and so they might express their stress emotionally they might cry they might might get angry and it's it's quite visible emotionally and then there are people who are much more mental stresses so when they start to get stressed you find that their mental um, capabilities start to get suboptimal so they might get scatty they might get forgetful they might get foggy brained um or can't make decisions and then on the other end of the spectrum there are somaticizers so these are people who manifest their stress physiologically and so they might be quite look quite stoic you know they're that they don't maybe don't even realize that they're stressed and what will happen is their bodies will give away and we see this you know around you know eight weeks of high intensity stress is when your body starts to manifest stress and that's because um, stress hormones, cortisol, they, um, that hormone houses or like, you know, benches any non-essential metabolic processes within the body that's not designed for immediate survival. So when you're really highly stressed, things like your digestion um, changes and your immune function changes. So typically your body is um, engaging in housekeeping duties, like going around scavenging up cancer cells, um, viruses, bacteria, parasites. But when you're really stressed, your body thinks, I don't have time to do all that housekeeping, you know, scavenging up all those little things. I've got a big thing coming. And so what happens is you'll find that your, you know, a lot of your immune functions shut down and then you'll get maybe immunoglobulin G or A that will get a spike in the beginning. And basically what this is, is preparing your body to be, say, eaten by a saber-toothed tiger. (laughs) But the internal uh, housekeeping immune function actually gets stopped. And so what we find is people will get really, really sick you know, say you're go, you're about to go on holidays mm. and you and you work really really hard for a couple of weeks leading up to that holiday, and then your body will clap out once you get on holiday because your immune function can only hang on for so long. Yeah, I think I, you hear that all the time. People are like, 
I was on holiday, but I got sick, you know, and, and I think like the key is, of course, not to get yourself in that situation, clearly. Um, you know, it's hard, though, right? <laughs> like we've got so much pressure to perform, yeah, you know, there's a lot schedules, deadlines, mortgages, kids, parenting. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of stress. What would you say? I mean, I, we're going to get into the tactics, but I think just when we're, you know, on it, I, you know, I think, and I know, Jem, you talk a lot about this, you know, these, how do we deactivate in a meaningful way so we can manage that acute stress in, in a more elegant way, right? So we're not at a in a situation where we get sick, you know? And, and I think, and I, I don't mean to like flex the fact that I haven't been sick since 2017, but I'm going to for a second. <laughs> You know, and and it's just such a good sleeper, Christian. Well, I mean, like, I am vigilant. I am vigilant, vigilant about my sleep and my meal times. But but I think there there is a taxonomy of of behaviors that will are immunoprotective, right? And um and Absolutely. and can keep us from from getting sick, right? If we adopt those behaviors consistently, you know, what would you say? From your experience, you know, when you're working with these kind of high stress folks who are in high stakes environments, they've got a lot going on. What are the few behaviors that you would recommend they adopt to protect themselves from, to enable this housekeeping that you're talking about, right? We don't want to be in a situation where we're not allowing our system to do that protective housekeeping that you described, I think, so beautifully. Like, what are the few behaviors that can kind of get us down a, a, a better path? Yeah, I think um, it's a really good question is awareness of your stress style. Mm. So understand, are you a somaticizer? Are you someone who manifests stress physically? Like, you know, do you sit there finding yourself, you've been clenching your jaw for the last half an hour. Do you feel a tightness in your chest? Um, do you feel exhausted? Um, and then once you see that first instant sign of stress, or do you start to feel forgetful? Or do you start to feel a bit weepy? Know that that is a trigger. That is, that is, that is the, the sign that you know, stress is starting to accumulate. And once you know that, have your personal protocol. Mm. So have your formula. Not all stress is equal. And you have to understand that there are different types of stress that would will trigger, mm -hmm. um, be triggered by different types of events. And so understand which types of events are more likely to set you off. So, you know, there's about five different types of stress. So there's, you know, um, physiological stress. Mm -hmm. So this is when you actually, you know, you don't do enough exercise or maybe you do too much exercise. There's emotional stress. So maybe you've got people in your life that sort of suck the bone marrow out of you and, and really drain you emotionally. Or maybe you're stressed because you're lonely and you feel like you haven't got enough, you know, social interaction, connectedness and intimacy in your life. Then there's, you know, sensory stress. We've all got that because we've all got phones. We all have nighttime lights. We, we live in noisy environments. We have like this stimulus coming in all the time. Then we've got mental stress. And so this is where we, you know, live in a, a very cognitively draining environment. Every, it seems like every week we have to learn a new device, a, a new app, a new system. Mm. Like we're always under cognitive strain. Then we've got, uh, I think, um, what you call is desire stress. So this is like when you compare yourself to others and that constant need to want a new thing, to mm. see everybody else having amazing holidays, big houses, new cars, new technology, you know, amazing handbags. And that comparative stress mm. is incredibly um, draining and, you know, that, that need to desire. Or there's, on the other hand, there's people who have a lot of stress because they deny themselves things. They said, I've mm. got to save. I can't do this. I can't, I can't go on holidays. I can't enjoy myself because I need to save. I'm worried about the economy. So that's stressful. And then we've got, you know, the greater higher consciousness stresses about life, purpose, meaning, direction, where you fit in the universe. Um, you know, is your daily endeavours actually in alignment with what you want to do? Mm. So once you work out what type of those stresses is actually driving your stress, then you can do something about it. And so then you, I'm very much about a targeted approach to stress. So we all know that we've gone on a holiday, we feel absolutely cooked and we 
you know, spend two weeks somewhere or a week or whatever, and then we go back to work, you think, I am still exhausted. And that's because on that holiday, you didn't actually um, diminish the types of stress that made you stress in the lead up to that holiday, because you're still scrolling on your phone. You've still got your kids asking, can I have this? Can I have that? Um, you still have to pay for that big hotel bill. And so you've still got all the stress, even though you're lying next to a beach, you know, yeah. a beach or um, you know, sitting in the sun, you're still scrolling. Right. So you actually haven't eliminated like, you know, that sensory stress mm. or that comparative stress or that emotional stress. You may be engaging in physical rest. So match your rest to your stress. Mm. So that's sort of, sort of broadly. But then so what are some practical things you can do? And, you know, and we speak about this a lot, Kristen, mm. and, you know, this is, you know, really much, you know, very much the foundation of our uh, research is have those pillars of health. Mm. So, you know, sleep is absolutely imperative. Mm. If you're going to give, you know, put your attention anywhere, making sure you have sleep consistency, mm. good quality sleep is where you get your biggest bang for your buck. Mm. And I think that a lot of people, you know, may, may think they sleep, but unless you're measuring it with like a device like the whoop you actually don't know if you're hitting slow wave sleep mm -hmm. you don't know if you're getting REM sleep and unless you know as we know unless you're hitting slow wave sleep you're not clearing away all the metabolic metabolic byproducts of thinking mm -hmm. you know you know that um, product adenosine yeah. you may wake up feeling absolutely exhausted um, and or unhappy or anxious or depressed and what humans like to do is we like to post-rationalise. We like to wake up and say, you know what, I feel terrible today. It's probably my relationship. It's mm. probably my job. I hate where I live. Where actually you probably just didn't get into deep slow-wave mm. sleep for a sufficient amount of time. You didn't clear away the metabolic byproducts of that day or the, or the last accumulative effect of the day. And that stuff makes you feel crazy. And so when people come to me and say, I feel really stressed, I feel really strung out, the number one thing I ask first up always is, how is your sleep? Yeah. And then, you know, if they go, I don't know, I say, get a device, go away, have a week of, you know, good hearty sleep, early to bed mm -hmm. before, you know, yeah. 10 o'clock. And then come back. And then, um, and then I'll work on concentric circles going out from sleep. And so it'll be, what are you eating? Mm. There's a whole lot of foods that actually diminish the quality of your sleep that you don't necessarily know are doing that. So things like heavy protein before bed, high levels of sugar, alcohol, it's the killer. Um, even MSG, monosodium mm. glutamate before bed, which I, it's a, glutamate is a neurotransmitter. So, um, you know, for those that don't know what MSG is, it's that, product the flavor enhancer that they put in um, food to make it taste delicious mm -hmm. and what I'm seeing um, so with sneaky. my data I know and I actually think this is it's, it's a culprit it's like criminal yeah so I when do. you look at your your data so just for people who don't know um, MSG you know it makes food taste utterly delicious people say it's an Asian food but it's in Mexican Italian and um, French and any type of takeaway food or a restaurant food typically has MSG in it. And you get this like, oh, my God, this food tastes delicious. And then when you're going home, you feel like absolutely exhausted. And then you might you may get into bed and go to sleep and you have crazy dreams all night. And then you wake up like super exhausted and thirsty. Now, if this is happening to you, you've probably had MSG. And what I see um, in the data is you've got lots of light sleep, hardly any slow wave sleep and lots of REM sleep. So that's what that crazy dreaming is. So there's there's another culprit. Um, so, and, you know, and Kristen, you speak about this a lot. Light exposure before bed, which kicks your circadian rhythm off in the wrong direction. Mm. So, you know, if you've got lux in your eyes over 80, you know, this is really going to hit your retinal cells and, yeah. um, and kick off that system in the wrong direction. Then... Other things that really impact your sleep is, you know, you know, cognitive rumination, mm -hmm. emotional rumination. Like, what are you thinking about when you get into bed and lie down? Like, I've got strict rules. When I'm horizontal, <laughs> the only thing I'm allowed to think about is nice, calm, non-emotionally evoking, mm -hmm. relatively boring topics. <laughs> Otherwise, your brain 
cannot differentiate between imagining that thing or actually seeing that thing. So yeah. if you're lying in bed thinking about stressful things or an argument you had or what's, what do you have to do tomorrow, your brain will start to produce stress hormones as if that thing is about to happen. Mm-hmm. Your brain's got this better be safe than sorry policy. Mm-hmm. And so it'll say, I don't know, you're thinking about stressful things. I may need to fight, run or, you know, activate. So I'm just going to secrete a few, you know, stress hormones just in case. And that's terrible for sleep. So, yeah, so sleep, big thing. So, Gem, that will impact not only your ability to fall asleep generally, but even if you're you're really tired, you might fall asleep. Will that end up fragmenting your sleep, that rumination? Oh, absolutely. So It rears its head at some point, right? You get exhausted. And if you've got this accumulative um, amount of, you know, stress hormones, uh, you know, once your body starts to process it, it, it'll wake you up. And so what I really advocate is throughout the day is, is having what I call nano intervals mm. or nano intermissions. So every time you go to do a new task, go to a new tab, change, you know, to a phone call, um, if you go on to that next page, what I do is I stop and literally have 30 seconds of resonant breathing mm. and this is a sort of intermission in your day mm. and then get on to the next thing. And those little punctuated, you know, fracturing the intensity of the stress I find mm. is incredibly helpful. So by the time you get to bed, you're not just like surging with like stress hormones and you're just like maybe have to take a sleeping tablet or, you know, people drink alcohol to, to, to sedate them. But when you've just punctuated the day, it seems like, you know, it's a little bit easier to get to sleep. Yeah. I and think then people, there's... and let's just stay on that just for a second, because I think, I think folks feel like it just sounds so simple, but I think that that is the way to like not get sick on your vacation, you know, is to be to your point, like you map stress, like the, a stressful situation with like a mini moment or a, a nano intermission of rest, you know, and you just do yeah. that proactively throughout the day. And it probably doesn't have to be a lot, right, Jen? That's, you know, 30 seconds, a minute yeah. where you're just consciously deactivating. And you, you mentioned resonance breathing, which I know we both are huge fans of. <laughs> yeah. So I've got a uh, PowerPoint slide and I can share this with you. It's literally a waveform mm. and it's, got a little blue ball that's timed for like six breaths in six breaths out and you know I have it on my desktop so I think I sent that to you Jen (laughs) (laughs) my son and I use it at night (laughs) yeah and you just just pretend you're sucking up the ball and bring it out and honestly that is like it's money it's so simple and so quick and then Jem I want to talk I'd love to get your insight. Um, you know, one of the things that we hear a ton from members is just waking up at, you know, 1 a.m., 2 a.m. And I know that it's the cortisol, right, that's starting to rise. Like what what is happening during the day or before bed that basically will wake you up or not wake you up? You know, like I know like if I'm, I'm ruminating before bed or I have some emotional conversation or maybe I haven't managed stress as effectively. The chances of me waking up at one o'clock or 2 a.m. are higher, I suppose, if I'm managing kind of my emotions and my stress really proactively throughout the day. Is is that actually what's happening? Like, is there a, what's kind of happening in the brain during that moment yeah, of waking? Is, yeah, this is a really important question. And I'm, it's something I get asked all mm. the time. And, and to be honest, you know, we don't know for sure why people will, you know, work at 2 a.m. every morning or 3 a.m., but there are a lot of theories and I'll, I'll just go through some of them. So, you know, typically busy people, knowledge workers who've got a lot on their plate, you know, you do accumulate a lot of really important high stakes thoughts mm. and decisions you've got to make. And we don't always have enough time to deeply think about them. So we'll, we'll sort of bank it. And so we'll we'll fall asleep exhausted. And then, as you know, the REM component of your sleep architecture is where you consolidate memories. It's where you um, make sense of your emotional world. And I also think that people don't understand that the REM part of your sleep has a very important forgetting function as well. I call it the defrag part of the sleep architecture. So it's basically when your brain says, okay, do I keep, delete, 
do I file that away? Do I, you know, um, is that important? Where do I, what box inside my head do I compartmentalize that thought? And so when you're in that REM sleep, sometimes these um, decisions are so important that it'll actually wake you up. So then you can consciously, using your prefrontal cortex, decide about this, where does this um, thought get filed? Mm. And so a really good antidote for that is brain dumping, is where you name to tame. So have a, a, a pad beside your bed with a pen and then you brain dump all of the things that's been, you know, been cogitating on during the day. And I find what's even more helpful is that you have dot points and say, okay, um, decide whether or not to um, hire this person or to change jobs. And what you do beside that point, you actually put a time. And so you almost have like a, a worry hour the next day. So you say, okay, at 10.15, I will think about that topic. Then you put the next topic. Okay, at 10.35, I will think about that topic. And so by adding the time to that list, it really does placate that sort of anxious part of your brain that really needs to disentangle these thoughts. And I, it's, it, I just think, you know... That's fascinating. It's, it's, re it's really, really helpful because your brain's really naughty. And if you say <laughs> totally. to your brain, don't think about this thing, don't think about this mm. thing, what, is, what does your brain do? It'll absolutely turbo think of that yeah. thing. So what you're doing is just pl placating that kind of anxious part of the, your brain that wants to sort this stuff out. Mm. And, you know, at three in the morning, it's quiet. It's, you know, it knows that there's no other distractions except you and your mind. So that's why it'll say, wake up, wake up. But there is um, other theories and, you know, this is, you know, something that I'm at utterly fascinated in and something we're doing research in is the impact of your gut biome mm. on sleep. So we know that inside your digestive tract you've got you know around about two and a half kilograms of, of gut biome i don't know if you can translate that into pounds what is two and a half kilograms it's a lot you've got like hundreds of millions of different types of um, microbiome microbes in your digestive yeah, tract 5.5 pounds it's a lot, a lot. Just think of that it's like crazy and so we know that they also exhibit diurnal fluctuations. Mm. And so these things... Circadian rhythm. Yes, those, they, yeah, yeah they, they, they really do. And they um, are hungry little critters. Mm. And so if you're going before bed eating a lot of simple carbohydrates, um, a lot of sugars, what you're doing is you're feeding, you know, a lot of those uh, certain types of these gut biome and it's like giving them junk food fairy floss it's mm. like they're like they're getting food for free because you can they can digest these sugars very very quickly and so they'll proliferate and they have you know quite short quick reproductive cycles mm. and so you get this proliferation of gut biome and there is some theories that they will send out bio-identical hormones as human hunger hormones and that is what's waking you up. Wow. And so, you know, people often will get up and be really starving hungry mm. and they want to go and eat. Um, and, I, you know, I call these false hungers. Mm. So don't always believe your hunger because if you've got an overactive or, you know, proliferation of, you know, certain types of gut biome, um, you will be hungrier. And then they there's a theory that this will actually wake you up. Mm. And so I really strongly um, advise don't have a lot of sugar before bed. More to the point that, you know, sugar is like putting fire in the furnace and it will cre increase your metabolic basal rate like mm. throughout the night. Mm. You'll get a higher resting heart rate right. if you're literally feeding your body with sugar. And so, yeah. So, What's um, the relationship to cortisol? I kind of I go back to that. Like if you're eating sugar... And basically you're asking your, you know, body to digest that. That's going to make you stressed, right? Is, is it the cortisol that wakes you up or is it the, like, what is actually, what do you think mechanistically is happening there? Well, well, you know what cortisol is? It's actually just the hormone that um, releases the 
energy that you need to fight or flight. Right. You know, so it helps release glycogen from the liver. So it literally is a signal to your body to drop as much, you know, fuel into your bloodstream so you can run. Right. And so if you've got high levels of cortisol, your body's thinking, I need to like, you know, dump all of this sugar into the, the bloodstream for your big muscle groups, if your heart and your lungs to fight or flight. Um, so another thing I, I just before we move on about gut biome, um, there's a great company that I've, we've, we've been doing our research with at the University of Queensland called Microba. And they interestingly have found that those individuals who have got low gut biome um, biodiversity are more likely to wake up at 3 a.m. than those with a heterogeneous gut biome. So it means that they've got so the larger amount of species, different species that you have, the less likely you are to wake up at 3 a.m. So yeah, really interesting. I don't know. With what is the direction of causality? Not sure. Yeah. But so the, I think there are many factors at, to, at play that will make you have disrupted yeah. sleep. It's clearly modifying also, the relationship between cortisol and that, probably. You know, I mean, that's got to be mechanistically what's mm -hmm. probably happening. Yeah. And also, there is that theory of the bimodal sleep where. You know, for the better part of you know two hundred fifty thousand years, humans might have had two phases of sleep. Yeah, where they'd go to sleep when the sun went down, mm -hmm. and then they'd wake up in the middle of the night, and the adults would go around and you know whittle sticks, converse, have sex, mm -hmm. do stuff, and then they'd have a second sleep mm -hmm. um, cycle. And so it was the industrialized revolution where humans were then pushed into a one sleep cycle, and then the advent of lights, so we stayed up later. And, um, and then, that, you know, as you know, I mean, you know more about this than me, the impact of light on your circadian rhythm. Yeah, it's, um, I think that it's definitely worth noting that um, when we're viewing light at a phase of the natural light dark cycle, we put our body under tremendous amounts of stress, you know, and, and I think that's, you know, some of the research uh, that's come out recently just showing the impact of, of light viewing between the hours of 11 p.m. and 4 a.m. has a pro-depressive effect. It actually impacts our dopamine system. Is, um, yeah, and remember pro-aggressive as pro well. Yes, I know, which is just oh, insane. Like, you think about teenagers, they're up all night and they find they wake up and they're hungry oh, and grumpy. Yeah, exactly. I know. <laughs> so like, you know, you're more, you're like, you know, as you know, when you don't um, sleep, well, the next day you produce more cortisol. Right. And also you have cravings for salty, fatty, sugary foods the next day. Yeah. So, I mean, it's just like this vicious, I know. you know, self-deprecating cycle. Like you're tired, so you eat more and you eat more. And then so you don't feel good about yourself. You ruminate more. And because you're eating bad foods, you actually have worse sleep. And, I yeah, know. I think there's so many people in these terrible cycles. And I think something that I haven't mentioned is the importance of exercise. Yeah. So we know that our human physiology is like this amazing pharmacological factory mm. that produces all these anti-anxiety and sleep-promoting hormones. Like, you know, there's myokines mm. in muscles. We've got osteocalcium when you put weight on your long bones mm. that increases, you know, spatial reasoning and um, memory. And, you know, and if you're not moving your body, your brain actually thinks there's something wrong with yeah. you. So there's a, a sedentary depression hypothesis so if you think about humans for the better part of our you know existence we were rarely rarely still um we were always moving um weaving collecting sticks um like just doing something yeah. and forward the motion only time is like such a and, critical yeah, forward piece of like our evolutionary yeah which Huberman talks about mm -hmm. but if we were um if we were sedentary it typically meant that we were sick yeah and so no longer our, relevant yeah and our, our brain our primitive brain would would then um, make us retreat mm. and sleep so sleep because the best thing to get better is sleep and then retreat so we wouldn't infect the clan with whatever we have and retreat um, re retracting socially and and sleepiness are two symptoms of depression so i honestly think our sedentary nature is often misdiagnosed as you know, depression, anxiety. Yeah. And also I honestly believe 
um, sleep deprivation is often misdiagnosed as depression and anxiety. So, yeah, move your body. There's a really interesting study that's out of Oxford, and they said if you want to get the biggest bang for your buck in terms of um, improving mood um, and reducing anxiety and depression is to move your body forward in an environment that is green, Mm. (laughs) preferably where you can see water Mm. (laughs) with a person, another person with a shared goal. Mm. You're checking so So, many boxes, light, connection, movement yeah so if you want to if you want to stay sane and happy go for a walk in the green with a friend and have a goal directed we're going to go to that awesome cafe Mm. and sit down and chat and like honestly that is that's super protective you're moving sunlight laughing um and burning calories and you know and 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 strengthening bones yeah yeah perfect i love it uh, all right, let's shift gears a little bit. You've done a lot of your research has been uh, with Aussie Special Forces. So you've worked a lot with, with both men and women in the Australian military and armed um, services. Talk a little bit about just that experience and, you know, how does stress kind of manifest in those environments? Um, maybe talk a little bit about PTSD but yeah, just would be curious kind of what your experience has been and, and how that might be a little bit different than um, working with knowledge workers, for example. Yeah, it was a really fascinating environment to go into. So I did a part of my PhD at the Australian Special Forces and my uh, topic was a preemptive approach to stress mm-hmm. using emotional intelligence training as a moderator mm-hmm. and then using biomarkers as a proxy for stress. The reason I, um, I used biomarkers, so I used cortisol and immunoglobulin A, and that the reason I did that was because the people in that environment are typically under-report their levels of stress mm. for many reasons. And so then having an objective way of measuring stress I thought was really important. How many saliva samples did you take? <laughs> Oh my god! I, I, yeah, <laughs> I've never spoken about this before. It, it like turns my stomach just like thinking about it. Oh, I, even like just remembering it, like. <laughs> oh. <laughs> and and you know, like those tubes of snot is really oh. what brought me to you. Yeah, yeah. Um, like there's got to be another way to measure this. <laughs> you know, yes. <laughs> Thank you, um, yeah. because I, I honestly was sitting in a, in a lab, and actually one of my lab um, assistants fainted because it was in Australia, super hot, super gross, and I was like oh, my God, I'm done with this. It's like, surely there's another way. And that's when, um, yeah, and that's when, um, you know, um, Matt, who was running the Human Performance Wing, the Australian Special Forces, um, was the first whoop wearer in Australia. And so he actually wow. heard of the whoop through um, an American Special Forces mm. operator. Uh, uh, operator give, give and, Matt a proper shout out because he's kind of the man behind the scenes yeah <laughs> yeah yeah so yeah um so former um commando um was injured in 2010 got blown up by a Russian anti-tank mine and then actually rehabilitated and went back for a fourth um tour to Afghanistan so intense and yeah so he was really incredibly interested in you know, human performance optimization, and, you know, looking at the continuum of health that, you know, there's, you know, there's not like a healthy bucket and a sick bucket, you know, we've got to have that, this continuum of where you can, you know, still be operational. And then using all of these things we're talking about, and, and you know, the military is super data driven. So, you know, this is when he found the whoop and was like, this is it, um, really suits um, our purposes. So just going back to your question, you know, these guys were operating in sort of like these really austere environments where one minute they had to be dealing with diplomats and partner forces and, um, you know, nation-state people, um, people who didn't speak English, and then the next minute they're, you know, having to hunt Taliban. And so that required an enormous amount of emotional flexibility. So be able to be calm at one minute but then, you know, um, activate, you know, in, into a combat situation within seconds and then down-regulate and come back. And so a lot of my work was really looking at how we could train this emotional flexibility, emotional management, mm-hmm. emotional perception, understanding that emotions is data and that, that you can use that to make effective 
um, decisions, depending on what context and, you know, how to upregulate those around you, how to moderate the, um, the emotion and the stress of your team and those partner forces. And so it was really, yeah, it was actually like a lot of fun and really, really fascinating because they said to me, okay, you're teaching stress. You really need to know what kind of stress that we, we, we experience. So, you know, I got chucked out of a plane, um, chucked off a tower, got to, you know, uh, use their weaponry. You know, a, ho- a whole lot of things did a, a full mission profile. Yeah, so just, you know, really got to, it was like an ethnographic immersion into this environment. And so what we were really looking at is, as I said before, a preemptive approach to stress is getting all of these tools into their toolbox or into their vernacular. So when the high stakes, high stress moments came, they were already fairly equipped um, to pull these out of the toolbox. And so this took um, engaging in stress inoculation activities. So you never really want to work out what is your stress style, how you respond to stress in that moment. You want to have a pretty good idea of, you know, how you respond prior mm. to those moments. So there was a lot of a stress inoculation activities and a lot of uh, contextualising the science in in their particular world. So Matt, um, the commando, he would stand there and tell stories and say, this is what happened to us. This is what happened when these guys got blown up. This is what happened when we got stressed. This is, you know, like had all these amazing stories. And then I would, we would oscillate between me and the theory. And so I would come in and give psychophysiological um, theory to all the stories that he told. And I would tell the basic principles of the human stress response system, um, you know, cortisol, testosterone, mm-hmm. oxytocin, and kind of um, tell stories through hormones mm-hmm. and, um, and physiological processes. So it was a really effective model. And, and, and so. That- process to try to get them to understand their emotions and understand the root of those emotions, what, what's actually happening physiologically, so they could yeah, manage yeah. them more effectively? Or Yeah, so understanding the bidirectional nature of emotions and physiological responses. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you'll get your body will send messages up to your brain and then your brain will then, you know, praise that in a way that you will make an emotion um, manifest or then you'll have emotions that will then like actually transmute into physiological reactions. So there's a very much a bi-directional relationship. So getting them to really understand um, all of those things, emotional perception, um, being able to look at someone's faces and, and infer what are they thinking, what are their next actions, uh, emotional perception in yourself, as I spoke about, what's your first instant sign of stress. Um, and so lots of context-driven education for, for their environment. And so some of the things that we taught in terms of how to be um, some of the protective factors to stop you from getting PTSD was, you know, there was a formula. In order to be protective, you needed to be intellectually stimulated, socially connected and physically active. And so, and and you needed to have a multidimensional identity so don't just be utterly consumed with the concept that I am a commando Mm. I am a special forces soldier actually you know what you're a a multi-dimensional complicated human that has multi multi multifactorial skills and interests and connections into community Mm. the reason we did this is because if you do get injured and the one thing you are is a commando and now you're an injured commando, that's a very dangerous proposition. You put yourself in a terribly precarious situation if you are just a unidimensional human. And so... It happens to athletes of, too, you know. Oh, I mean, you yeah. see this. We work with Australia Institute of Sport, mm-hmm. really high-level athletes. Yeah. Like you must see this all the time. I know personally just transitioning out of, you know, international competition, like you, it's a... It's a challenge, you know, because your identity Absolutely. is wrapped even, up in that. Even knowledge workers, like, you know, if you're a CEO or mm. if you're a lawyer or if, and then you lose your job. Yeah. Or you're I mean, retired. It's, 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 yeah. 
yeah, when you're retiring too, that's a big one. And so it's just about having multiple touch points um, in your life that if one thing's falling down, Mm. at least you've got your community, at least you're of Mm. service, at least you've got a hobby, at least you're you know, you've, you, you've got a sport that you love. At least, you know, you, your partner still um, wants to talk to you. <laughs> so there was, a, there was a lot of that. And then, you know, as we talk about the biopsychosocial model, so looking at all those factors in your life that create allostatic load. And so allostatic load is all those little pebbles that sort of like weigh down the bridge and it's okay, one pebble, two pebble, three pebble, 16 pebbles, 100 pebbles, maybe okay but then when the, the big truck comes over that bridge that's when mm. um that's when the bridge falls and you think oh it was the bridge that did it well actually no it was like the 16 million pebbles that you piled up into your life what are those pebbles um so how you sleep mm. how you move what you let run around in your head how you ruminate because we know thoughts become chemicals mm. and those chemicals do damage to your body thoughts aren't just ephemeral you know, concepts that are out in the ether, thoughts become tangible chemicals that impact your immunity, impact your digestion, impact your, you know, cardiovascular health. So that's, you know, another thing. How you interact with your um, significant other, your kids, how you interact at work, how you interact in your team, and then how you interact with your broader community organisation and then how you show up in the world. So they're, they're, they're all the, the, the factors that we looked at. Um, in terms of um, reducing allostatic load. And so this is what we talk about, energy management, knowing what factors deplete you and knowing what factors replenish you. And that really goes back to those, you know, those five types of stress as well. Um, Knowing which, you know, which things are are really like sucking the bone marrow out of you. And you see yourself as a vessel full of energy. Some there's got, you know, punch holes in the side of that, vessel where it just leaks out you might be pouring in more energy in the top of that vessel but if you've got holes punched in the bottom you don't even know you've got these holes Mm. it's a you know it's a sun zero game so building this toolkit do you did you have any data on you know individuals that then experienced a traumatic event that could potentially lead to some sort of post-traumatic kind of stress disorder or event like did did you know, did you, were you able to quantify kind of any buffering effect for individuals who really had a great grasp of these tools and then kind of incorporated them into their life? Did that buffer them from these kind of stressful events or were you able to? Yes, definitely. Yeah, yeah we found, um, well, we find that the special forces guys actually have lower levels of, of um, PTSD than say normal um, army guys or community. I think because they're, they, they are, They've got really high IQs. They have this bent for mastery, and that they really understand the need to to watch, you know, their physiology, watch their psychology. And so, when we went through and did my research, I did two years of research, and um, and then spent several years then consulting back. We found that the guys that we trained in the emotional intelligence training, it was like a five day package that those guys actually had, um, you know, better cortisol profiles, better immune function profiles, but they also had better memory recall. Mm. They actually had more accurate shooting. Yeah, and, and they and we had more guys get through the really, really hard commando selection course. It was an 18-month course. Mm. So attention to emotional intelligence factors was absolutely protective and it actually helped them in their vocation. Mm. Gemma, we ask all of our high performers this question. Um, what are you obsessing over right now? Oh, my God. Like, where do I start? I've got um, <laughs> so many. Um, oh, let me think. I am obsessing over. Oh, I love, I'm, I'm really super interested in the impact of gut biome um, and blood glucose levels on like leadership performance and decision-making. So that's um, I'm doing a lot around, you know, the psychophysiological impact on our behaviours. And I'm looking at, what else have I been looking at? Um, I, I'm really interested in chemo signalling. So the impact of our 
um, emotional expression and how this actually sends off chemicals, efferent chemicals that humans can subconsciously pick up. So, you know, we know when you walk into a room and you're like, oh, you can cut the air with a knife, <laughs> like, well, something's been going on in here. Well, when we know now that, you know, if you're tired, you actually produce a lot more cortisol the next day, or if you're stressed, you produce cortisol and people can pick it up. And there's research to, you know, show that we've got um, receptors on our skin and in our paranasal sinuses that are really, really potent detectors of other people's stress. So like that whole concept of emotional contagion and being aware of that um, within teams, like sporting teams. I mean, our psychological safety finding right there. Oh, yes, yes. So as we know, we did a great study with um, Amy Edmondson and Whoop and um, McKinsey, and we looked Nadia, at Nadia Fox and yeah, mm. at gorgeous PhD Nadia Fox. Shout out to Nadia! Mm-hmm. And um, we, yeah, we found that those leaders who were um, sleep deprived and stress, their team members had lower levels of psychological safety um, when that leader was like the night before hadn't slept enough or was stressed which is amazing because the subordinates that answered our question they had no idea what the boss was doing the night before but they could just feel that something was a bit off Mm -hmm. and so they they were a bit more protective retractive it's the chemo signaling yeah I mean it's just wild absolutely like how you can see it in your face you know just 45 minutes of sleep there yeah Uh, oh, and you, yeah, yeah, you, you're putting off so much more cortisol, yeah. and also there's all these micro expressions, mm-hmm. and you're probably a little bit shorter. You can't a little perceive, bit... yeah, that they're mm-hmm. happening. But um, I'm also really interested in psychoneuroimmunology. Mm-hmm. So you know that is. Have you have you heard about the blister box study? No. That's when um, I think it's Janice um, Keekholt Glasser. She did this study where they got couples into the lab and then she had this little device which was a box that you attached to your skin and it rubbed a blister into the skin of these people and what and then what she did is she drew um, a needle into the blister and drew out the blister solution and looked at immune markers I think there was like interleukin 6 or something and then she got these couples to either get along in the lab and talk about nice things or she got the couples to argue and what she found that those couples that argued their blisters took I think it was like six days extra to heal what? than those couples who didn't wow. argue and I'm probably butchering the, the stats here but the basic premise of this study is that the quality of your relationships is highly correlated with the quality of your ability to repair and recover and so you think about in sporting teams like all you know if you've got any type of you know friction within Mm -hmm. a sporting team this is a really huge um, physiological performance um, hinderer and this is you know something that we we spoke about a lot with the the Australian Olympic swim team going into Tokyo Um, we talked about you know the importance of you know, trust, psychological safety and good feeling because um, if you have any type of friction with your team members, that produces, you know, chemicals that are performance-inhibiting chemicals. Ruin your sleep, um, you know, how's your immune function and make recovery a lot slower. That is fascinating. Yeah, so, so super fascinating. Gemma, we're super, super pumped about our Wim Hof study. Why don't you give us a, a one-two about what we're trying to achieve with that and uh, what that's going to – I know we're ramping up here soon. Yeah, this is super exciting. So um, just to give you a bit of background, so I work with a company called Wilson Asset Management, and Jeff Wilson, the founder, the chairman, he's this amazing, incredibly philanthropic man, and – so he um, is friends with Wim Hof and Wim said, you know, I want to do some research, you know, around my method. And Jeff, who I work with, said, I know the person 
to help you with that. So we met Wim and he said, yeah, I would, you know, he's so um, charismatic and excitable. And he said, I want to test, you know, my method. And so we can't really exactly give the complete details of what we're testing, but basically we're looking at does the Wim Hof method have statistically significant improvements in knowledge worker physiology and psychology and we're using the whip device on all of our participants so we're going to have some really hard objective data to really dig you know deep dive into the Wim Hof method so watch this space Uh, it's kicking off very soon and um, hopefully we'll have some incredible data to report on on our research. So yeah, thank you to Whoop for providing the Whoop devices for this study. You know, this is a really big contribution and it's really going to make it, um, you know, really scientifically valid. Yeah. Thanks so much, Jem. Yeah. We're, we're really excited. Uh, it's an area that is relatively untapped from a research perspective. And I think putting together the breath work and the cold, it's such a beautifully designed study too. Like I, I just, I love the design. I, I think it's going to enable us to show effects there's so much rigor behind yeah there really is it's it's uh it's it's really beautiful so i'm i'm excited for this okay final question gem what are the three simple ways to mentally prepare or calm yourself during a stressful situation oh this is a good question because everybody is going to face a Mm -hmm. stressful situation so i actually i haven't got three things but i i'm really cognizant of what we call anticipatory stress so what are your thoughts in the lead up Mm. the night before or the couple of days before be very disciplined about what you think about because when you're talking about like you know winning a race or performing in a speech you know hundreds of a second or every single word matters and so um stressing in the lead up to an event is very metabolically expensive. It actually draws your vital energy. So night before, be very disciplined about what you, you're thinking about. Don't eat heavy meat the night before. Don't have MSG. Don't have alcohol. Hydrate. And then in the morning when you get up, if you haven't slept very well, don't worry about it. Okay, Humans are okay with one night of sleep deprivation. What is What is dangerous is sleep deprivation plus sleep deprivation anxiety. You've got to to decouple the anxiety about not sleeping and not sleeping because one night's totally fine. So just look for evidence that, oh, you know what, I actually feel not too bad. Um, In the morning I would have protein for breakfast. I wouldn't have any sugars for breakfast because you get this blood sugar Mm -hmm. fluctuation. So I'd have, you know, some good protein. I would... Photon gaze, I would get light into my retinas that would activate my, um, you know, circadian rhythm in the right direction. Mm-hmm. I would oxygenate my brain in the morning. So I'd make sure that I would do some kind of like exercise. Mm-hmm. And then before that stressful event, I would have a battery of success recalls. So I would be thinking about all the times when I actually did really well. Mm-hmm. I would not be at all thinking about what if I mess up, what if I fumble, what if I do the right thing. So my mental um, my mental capacity would be all around positive success, um, you know, good affirmations. Then I would visualise or remember off by heart the first three slides or the first three minutes of that talk or the first three seconds of that race. Um, and then right before that stressful event, I would spend time resonant breathing, you know, like through the nose mm-hmm. um, and then out through the nose. Oh, that little blue ball. That, yeah, we know <laughs> that inside the paranasal sinuses, you've got um, enzymes that produce nitric oxide, which, you know, that's a vasodilator mm-hmm. and it sort of drops your blood pressure and it, um, it just has an extra calmative effect. Then... Um, if I got really, really stressed and started to panic, I would do a vagus nerve reset. Mm. And that would just reset the frenetic messaging up to my brain and it would help me reset and regain and then I'd just keep resonant breathing. And then if I messed up, I'd be like, whatever, you know. (laughs) Amazing. 
Well, Gemma, thank you so much. This has been a fascinating conversation and uh, so many interesting insights. Appreciate your time and your expertise. Always great chatting, Kristen. Thanks for having me. Big thank you to Dr. Gemma King for sharing her insights on stress and emotional intelligence. If you enjoyed this episode of the Whoop Podcast, please leave us a rating or review. Please subscribe to the Whoop Podcast. You can check us out on social at Whoop at Will Ahmed. If you have a question you want to see answered on the podcast, email us podcastwhoop.com. Call us 508-443-4952. New members can use the code Will W I L L. Get a sixty dollar credit on Whoop accessories when they sign up. Okay, that's a wrap, folks. Thank you all for listening. We'll catch you next week on the Whoop Podcast. As always, stay healthy and stay in the green. Thank you.